It's your boy, and welcome to episode 53 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review the show. Uh, Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. And think of one person in your life who you think would like it and send them your favorite episode. Man, I feel like I'm doing a thousand things this week. Um, Went camping with my girlfriend last weekend. Went to Mount Diablo State Park. And if you've been following the news here in California, this fucking state has been on fire for the last two months, it feels like. Uh, When we went camping a few weeks ago in Big Basin, we left. uh, I mean, there was just smoke in the air. It was uh, very, very strange. This is sort of when things were kicking off. And uh, camped at Big Basin, left. The next day, the entire place burned down. Literally, places that we were walking through. We, like, there's this, um, I don't know if you call it the main office or, or whatever it is, but it's this log cabin where guests check in and you can get your map and all that sort of stuff. You know, we took this trail that sort of cut us right through there, and we got a little disoriented around that spot, so we were sort of trekking through there. And uh, disappeared you know, within a couple of days, just burned to the ground. And um, went up to Lakeport a couple weeks later. Uh, I think it was like two weeks ago now. Uh, in Lake County, California, there was just smoke everywhere there also. And uh, just uh, no fires in the park. It was just uh, very hot. It was like 105 degrees, smoke everywhere. And uh, had a good time despite that. And so we weren't feeling very confident about our upcoming reservation at Mount Diablo State Park. And we went up there. The air quality was not great. It was actually kind of an ominous moment. Like, first of all, I, I tell my brother about us camping. He thinks, I don't know, he thinks we're kind of fucking nuts for camping out when there's like smoke in the air and stuff. But, um, you know, there's this ominous moment when we're driving up through the guard gate where the, the guard looks at me and he goes, like, if this was a horror movie, this would obviously be in the first five minutes. But he goes, now, did you get the, uh, did you get the notice about no fires in the camp uh, or in the, uh, in the park area? Uh-huh. And did you guys get the notice about the water shortage? And we're like, yep. And he's like, and just so you know, after 8 p.m., we lock the front gate here. So if after 8 p.m. you really need to get out of the park, you're going to have to call 911. And we were like, uh, 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 okay. Which seems fucking crazy to me, just from like a liability standpoint. I mean, when we were up in Lakeport, I remember because there were no fires and all the food we brought had to be cooked, we had to fucking go to a restaurant to get takeout to bring it back to our campsite. So you're really sort of driving two and a half hours, not really to get the full camping experience, but just to sleep in a tent and eat takeout fish and chips from a fucking nearby brewery. But um, but I digress. Uh, the point is, is as we were leaving, I asked the guard gate in Lakeport, I was like, Are, so is there a curfew, curfew for us to get back in? And he looked at me like I was fucking crazy. He's like, nah, man, we leave the gate open 24 hours. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was bizarre to me when we're driving up through Mount Diablo. They're like, yeah, we locked the gates at eight o'clock. It's like from, from a safety slash liability standpoint, how could you lock people in, right? Like what if there really was a fire? What if a fire really started moving through the area? I mean, I guess if that was even a remote possibility, they probably would have closed the park altogether, right? But I'm just saying. And uh, they told us uh, the gate gets unlocked at sunrise. And so we had a great day. We went on a pretty strenuous hike. It was like 5.5 miles. Pretty beautiful, actually. And really no one was up there. You know, the the campsite we were at was like, there was probably like 30 lots or something, and I think there was like three other parties in the entire place. And, um, <laughs> well, I'll finish this. Fo- I mean, they, they told us that the gate was going to be locked at, unlocked at sunrise. We probably left at like 9.30, and when we get down to the thing, it's still locked. I mean, thankfully, there was like this guard coming shortly behind us, but it, it, I don't know. It just seems fucking bizarre to me. But, um, but uh, when we were... Uh, I don't know, we packed pasta salad. Who gives a shit? Sometimes I hear myself talk, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Is this a podcast or a goddamn audio diary? But um, we had we had pasta salad for dinner, but uh, we were supposed to be making s'mores. And at one point, <clears throat> you know, the sun's down. There's no fire, so we're, sitting just, we're, we're literally just sitting in our camping chairs with our headlamps on, just kind of looking out into the darkness, just kind of enjoying the, the noises of the wilderness and looking up at the night sky. And uh, all of a sudden, these two beady eyes just glare at us from the gloom. And, uh, you know, I sort of, my head snaps over to it. It's a fucking raccoon just kind of loping. Is that a word? They just sort of lope, lope through the darkness. 
And uh, I see, first of all, it's fucking huge. It's like the size of a goddamn Labrador. And I see raccoons around here also. And the thing that fucking creeps me out about them is that they're brave as hell. Like, I think raccoons, I think, th- I think they're intelligent. I think they're gross, but I think they're intelligent. And, I mean, they'll eat anything, right? And I think they understand. Like, they kind of come at you kind of lopish and sheepishly. Like, they're kind of like, they're kind of like, um, I'm picturing like Quasimodo. Like, their backs are kind of hunched and they sort of lope and like, excuse me, master. But they also go for whatever the hell they want. And it doesn't really matter how close you are to your food or if you're even holding it. It's like they come up to you kind of sheepishly, but assertively. And I think they understand on one level, like, who's scared of who. Like, I think I was telling my, like, either my buddy Matt or my brother about this. And they say, oh, they know whose heart is really racing. Like, they've done this enough times that as long as they just go for it, you may yell and scream or try to swat at them or whatever. But as long as they go for what they want, they're going to get it. And so we're sitting there in the lawn chairs. This thing lopes past us, kind of looking at us like, when are, when are you going to make your move? And just hops up on the uh, the picnic table, literally like wraps its arm around our fucking bag of marshmallows and grabs the corner of it with its mouth and just fucking darts off into the underbrush. And it like taunts us from a distance because it doesn't go far. It doesn't like try to get as far away from us as possible. It just knows if it goes into the brambles about a foot or two, we're not going to be able to reach him and he'll be able to keep an eye on us to see if we come after him. So I literally see these two eyes in the underbrush, just, like, looking at us. I hear him, like, nibbling away at this bag of marshmallows. And my girlfriend's like, oh, do you think he's gonna eat all of those? And I'm like, yes. Raccoons are fucking, like, uh, I was gonna say they're human dumpsters, but (laughs) they are, um, yeah, they're creature dumpsters. And then one of his buddies comes out of nowhere, too. Tries to lope past us fucking insane um yeah we had a couple brushes with wildlife one there was a lot of pretty birds and um sorry i got something in my teeth here um a lot of pretty birds uh my girl i mean my first of all every time you go camping you never have a good night's sleep at least for me i always kind of toss and turn for the first few hours and at some point like after about three or four hours of tossing and turning, you fall asleep and you get some you you get some good Z's before you have to wake up when the sun rises. And also, I've I've started packing earplugs. You know, as nice as it is to sort of sit there for a little while and listen to the woods, I have um, I'm just I'm too easily distracted. You know, if there's too much wildlife noise going on, I'm just going to attune to it and just now I'll never be able to sleep. So sooner or later, I have to put the earplugs in. And uh, I also took some melatonin before we laid down. But um, my girlfriend kind of, you know, at some point I sort of feel someone moving around in the tent. And I sort of look up and my girlfriend's kind of sitting up in the tent. And I'm like, what's up? And she's like, oh, it sounds like someone's going through the, um, I don't know what they call it, the bear box, <laughs> right? That little like, um, you know, that place where you're supposed to put your food or something to keep the animals away. And I'm like, I guarantee you it's one of those fucking raccoons. Like, they're smart as hell. Like, they, you know, I think you're probably supposed to put a lock on it, honestly, but we don't have a lock. We just sort of put things in there. But it has, like, one of those pull bar close closing contraptions, right? And sure as shit, wake up the next morning and that thing is wide open. And we didn't have any food in there, thankfully, just like her shoes and some, you know, the carrying cases for the tent and the and the chairs. But um, those things, God, raccoons are smart as hell, man. And we even, I don't even know what you call them. Like in Arizona, we would call them javelinas. I don't know if it's the same thing or what. I, honestly, I didn't even know these things fucking existed in California. But they were like wild pigs up on Mount Diablo. We just sort of wake up to hearing like <laughs> something sort of like uh, moving through the underbrush. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm looking at my computer right now. My mouse literally just died. So anyway, we'll fuck with that later, I guess. Um... <sighs> but camping. Yeah, I've enjoyed camping. It's surprising. Um, I feel like this is probably going to take me into a topic I don't really want to go into, but... Um, actually, oh, fucking hell, man. You know what it is? Here, here's how I'm feeling. The truth is, I was literally about to stop recording the podcast and start over, and... I can't do that. One, it's Saturday night. It's 9 o'clock at night. This podcast is going to be public in three hours. 
And the reason I'm recording it, did I say Saturday? I meant Sunday. Who the fuck knows what I said? The point is, is uh, this podcast is going to be public in three hours. And I tried to record this podcast four times on Friday night. And uh, I've said for a while that what I want to do is do a video podcast eventually. And so, uh, God damn it. Why can't this shit just be easy? I'm looking at my computer right now and it just went to sleep. So I'm not going to be able to monitor the time that we're doing here. Um, look, at some point I'm going to have to get up and plug my mouse back in to get some charge so I can fucking look at my computer. But here's what I'm trying to say. So Friday night, I'm thinking, you know what? We've done the podcast for about a year at this point. It's episode 53. We could keep doing things the way I've been doing them, which is just fine. I like the routine. I like the fact that it's easy. I like the fact that I just set up the mic, hit record, and just sort of turn this thing around, right? Um, and I like the idea of doing a video podcast. Um, one, I think it's just a great way to reach people, but it's also, it just sort of plays to my interest, right? It's the way I digest most of my podcasts, and so it's something I'd, I'd like to try. Um, but the problem with that is that I, I don't want it to be high production. And it doesn't mean I don't want it to look good. It just means I don't want to, when it's time to do the podcast, I don't want to have to set up the camera and um, move things around in my place so that I have, you know, a good looking area and, and I don't want to set up a bunch of lights or whatever the fuck I have to do. I, I want it to be something like what I already have, which is sit down, press record, knock it out. Um, so I thought what I would do is, uh, without necessarily letting you in on it, I would sort of practice by starting to record video, uh, simultaneously with the audio and, uh, and just sort of, uh, tweak things as I wanted to. And when I finally thought I had something that would be worth viewing, I would let the listeners know about it and start putting it online. It was, I guess it's to be, to be expected, but it was really uncomfortable. And after like 10 minutes of doing it, it's like, I didn't know where to look. Like, if I'm doing the audio podcast, I can, like, you know, my eyes can dart around. I can look at different things in the room. Um, I can close my eyes. Sometimes I get, like, sensory overload, and it's like I have to close my eyes to focus on what I'm saying. But with the video, it's like I didn't know where to look. Should I look at the camera? Um, all of a sudden, you just become hyper-conscious of your physical appearance. And I hate saying it, but your boy's. Look, I, I think I'm like most people. I care about how I look, right? And so, I, I don't know, man. It just made me feel self-conscious. Like, when I look... Like, if you ever look at, like, Jay Leno or David Letterman or really any of these late-night shows... I actually went to a taping of the Jay Leno show, so I know this from experience, but literally, they have monitors, like, video monitors that face the stage so that whether it's Letterman or Jay Leno or, or, or the guest anybody can see kind of what the camera is capturing, right? Um, and you'll see actors do this. They kind of look in a weird direction and you'll see them kind of like adjust their posture or whatever. It's because they're looking at themselves in the monitor and thinking, oh, I need to sit up or something like that. How they can like catch themselves on TV and not just like draw a blank is beyond me. Like if I was ever a guest on Letterman, I would, or whatever, I would request that they like drape something over the monitor so that I can't see myself. Because it's like, unless you're, like, I would see this when I would watch the Crystalia podcast. You, it was very obvious. Sorry, my foot's falling asleep. It was very obvious that Crystalia had some sort of monitor set up where he could see himself. And you could catch these moments where he would catch sight of himself and, you know, he would sort of flex in a weird way. Or you could just tell that he was really digging how he was looking. And it makes sense. The dude's a good looking guy, right? He's like a fucking male model of comedy. But if it's like, if, 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 it, if it was me... One, if I was doing the podcast and I caught sight of myself, I would just, like, deflate instantly. But especially if I was on the Letterman show or some late night show and I caught a glimpse of myself in the monitor, it, it, I would freak out. I mean, how many of us look at a photo of ourselves and go, what the fuck, my eyes are that far apart? Or why is one of my eyes bigger than the other one? Or, Jesus Christ, am I that bald? Or, damn, am I that fat? I need to start running. If I was on Letterman trying to hit my talking points about whatever thing I was trying to promote, and all of a sudden I caught a glimpse of my fat fucking dome on the monitor, I would draw a blank. I mean, I've had moments on this podcast where I sort of draw a blank and I start doing the, uh, 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 I can imagine having that happening, happening on TV. I've even thought about this with like bands and I don't know why I'm thinking of Kings of Leon, but maybe it's cause they're, they're sort of a known party band, but it's like, 
it's weird enough that I do a podcast that nobody listens to and I worry about people I know hearing it. I could not imagine if you were the type of person... Um, I'm trying to think of someone who's been scandalized recently, but um, if you're the type of person who, where you know someone out there in, in the world has dirt on you, that you would be doing your show or doing your shtick on TV, and it's all just kind of a farce. Like, how could you go on TV and play a song knowing that somebody knows things about you, right? Like, maybe it sounds stupid, and maybe it just says something about how I think about the world and myself and whatever, but it's like, if you're the lead singer of Kings of Leon, and you've betted who knows how many people, I, I'm assuming hundreds, right? Being on Letterman and knowing that those hundred people are looking at you, right? Like, there's the potential that all of those people, that cob... Like, I'm picturing, like, Indiana Jones, like, walking through a bunch of cobwebs, just, like, pulling them off him or something. It's like this this, uh, this web of people that you've walked through and have accumulated that sort of drag behind you in your life are just, like... I, I, I would feel accountable to those people. Does that make sense? And what does it have to do with anything? I don't know. Maybe just that realization of feeling self-conscious. Like you're kind of in your flow state, just kind of listening to your song. And all of a sudden you're thinking, hmm, I wonder if that floozy from Biloxi, Mississippi, who blew me in the back of the tour bus is watching this right now. Ugh. <laughs> or like it's, God, we're going all over the place. But um, who knows if I'll be able to come back to this point. But um, I was thinking, you know, people that you know from your past life. Right. Like here I am on Letterman trying to be a goddamn rock star. And uh, what about all the people I used to fucking play Dungeons and Dragons with in third grade going, who the fuck is that guy? Who does he think he is? Like, I know who he really is. He's a fucking nerd from uh, I don't know where Kings of Leon's from, like Tennessee or some shit like that. Arkansas, Alabama, someplace like that. It's like that dude's just a little pipsqueak. I used to fucking give that dude noogies in second grade. And here he is trying to be a rock star. Fuck that guy. But I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about like uh, schools I went to, right? And I remembered this teacher. I haven't thought of her in a long time, I guess. But she comes up for me at intervals, and I feel weird using people's names, but I'll, I'll just call her Miss M. And Miss M was my sixth grade uh, English teacher, and she was fucking bizarre. And I thought as I went through middle school, I'd never have to see her again. But at the last minute when we're going into eighth grade, there was some shuffle in the staff. And she happened to also be our eighth grade uh, English teacher. And she was a fucking, to me, she was like the epitome of like, and you don't know this when you're a kid. Like when you're a kid, you just think, oh, this person's kind of weird. And then when you're an adult, you look back and think, holy shit, that person was in charge of children. You know, you're sort of D, what's the word I'm looking for? You are, um... Uh, you unlearn this idea that adults are are sort of smart people categorically. You know, I've said it before, but it's like when you're a kid, you sort of go through your life and you're going through grades. And at the end of every grade, you have to graduate into the next level. And, you you know, it's easy to apply this to life in general. And so you think adults kind of know what they're talking about, right? They've graduated into adulthood. It's only when you're an adult yourself that you realize nobody really knows what the fuck's going on. And most of the people are just kind of making it up. Um, it's really like anything in life. Anytime you sort of move up the ranks in a, in a place of employment and you see how things actually operate, you realize, how the fuck does this shit stay together? It's like the government. Every human enterprise, when you really sort of look under the hood, it's amazed we haven't destroyed ourselves already. It's a fucking nightmare. But, um... Uh, yes. So my teacher, she was like this blowhard English teacher. She was very breathy, very ponderous. She thought she was so smart. And there's just a couple memories that stick out for me. One time I remember walking into our eighth grade English class and it just smelled like ass, like somebody had farted. And I just sort of walk in, I'm a kid and I'm like, oh my God, it smells awful. And my teacher walks up, she puts her arms around my shoulder and says, you know, you're only drawing more attention to yourself when you do that. And I was, even as a kid, I was like, fuck, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, God damn it, what the fuck? You can't just pin this on me. Makes me think it was probably her. But, um, yeah, I don't really know how to describe this person or articulate them. Imagine, if you go back and watch um, Billy Madison, the Adam Sandler movie where he has to return to school, it was kind of like a Miss Libby type from preschool, except imagine very self-satisfied. Not just like flighty and dopey 
and like breathy, but also like very kind of self-satisfied, thought she was very smart. Like she was the type of teacher who would always say things like she was dropping real knowledge on you, you know? Like she thought every moment of her fucking life was like Dead Poet Society. Like her, like she thought every moment was like, oh, captain, my captain. She wanted to fucking be Robin Williams from Dead Poet Society. And really we were all kind of looking at her with like, like, a, like a goddamn Rubik's Cube. Like what the fuck is wrong with this person? And again, it's not till you're an adult that you go, oh, okay. I had these things in life. I was sitting across from my girlfriend and I was saying, you know, I go through life and a lot of times I meet people and it's like something's wrong. I have this abiding, enduring sense that something is wrong with this person. And we're supposed to be living in a culture where we're less judgmental. But I have very strong opinions about people when I first meet them. And maybe it's a confirmation bias type thing where it's like, when I am proven to be right, those are the times that stick out to me, so I feel like it's every time. It's probably not. But if I spend enough time with someone, they sort of prove to be who I thought they were in the end. Excuse me. But um, that's who Miss M was. I was just, I didn't know what to call it. I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I didn't have the experience to, to sort of categorize them in a way that made sense to me as a kid, but there was just something wrong with them. And uh, I just sort of, you know, filed that away, and there was just sort of like an ellipses at the end of my Mrs. M experience, right? And then I go through my life, I end up going to boarding school for a little while, um, I come back, I do music for a little bit, and I remember when I was going to the local junior college, I was starting to study music for the first time. I had a teacher, my first music theory teacher, who said to me, uh, I don't, I, I think I kind of like, uh, I sort of let him on. Like we had this sort of, uh, class assignment. We had to like submit a proposal for our final music project. And I really tried to impress him. Like I knew there's this French composer, Olivier Messiaen, who I, I really like, but I also knew that if I dropped that composer's name, like it would like pique my teacher's interest. Like, Oh, how the fuck does this fucking you know, intro to music theory guy? How does he know this composer? So I probably suggested, like, oh, maybe I'll take a motive from Messiaen's, um, uh, you know, the, the, the nativity of the Savior and maybe make a theme and variations based on it or some bullshit. And so he kind of calls me over to his desk after class, and he's like, hey, what are your interests in music? And I was like, oh, I want to be a songwriter. And he was like, oh, how many songs have you written? And I was like, oh, 15, 15, 20, maybe 30. And he was like, oh, wow. Well, you know, I have a studio if you're ever interested in, like, you know, having some studio classes or like getting some feedback on your work, I'd be up for that. And I was like, oh, dope. And I remember I showed up for the first day and he's like, hey, why don't you play one of your songs? And I was like, actually, I lied. I've never written a song before in my life. And he had kind of a chuckle about that. But the point is, is um, I, I don't know how we necessarily got on this topic, but he uh, was a composer. He happened to be writing music for this mime theater in Tucson, Arizona. There was some mime production that they were doing and he was writing the music for it. And they wanted someone to videotape the performance. And I don't know how we got on the topic. I think I may have mentioned in passing, like around that time, maybe I had filmed something. Like I used to do this thing where like, if something cool was coming to town that was like relatively accessible and I wanted like closer access to that person. Oh, this is interesting actually. I would like volunteer to like film it for them. Like the one that comes to mind is there is this podcast host named DJ Grothy. He's still out. We're actually friends on Facebook now. But um, he hosted this podcast called Point of Inquiry. And he was giving this talk at the Pima County Public Library or something. I think it was called... Oh man, what was it called? It doesn't matter. It was about like Darwinism and something like that. But, um, you know, he was like a skeptic sort of... Um, I don't know, popular science kind of speaker, right? And so I just emailed him leading up to it. And I was like, hey, uh, if, if it would be helpful for you, can I show up and film the event for you and kind of edit it, edit it into a finished product for you? And he was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I did that, met him briefly. I ended up editing it down into these uh, different uh, segments or whatever and uploading them to YouTube. Um, and it was kind of funny. I, uh, well, this is sort of tangential, I guess, but I did that. I uploaded them to some random channel that I had for a while. I think he shared them around that time. This was like when YouTube was like just starting. This was probably like 2000, I don't know. I want to say like 2006 or 2005, 2006, but I honestly don't even remember when YouTube started, but it was like shortly after YouTube was a thing. 
And uh, I remember uploading those to YouTube, and there was this other thing that happened. It was like this conference where like people of faith and atheists got together, and it was all the big wigs in atheism. It was like Sam Harris, Dawkins. I don't think Christopher Hitchens was there, but I think Daniel Dennett. And so we were all these panel speakers, both atheists and religious people. And I took all the skeptics, and I edited their talks down. I, I was able to download the video somehow. I edited them down. I uploaded them to this channel. And I remember years went by, maybe like... I don't know, eight to 10 years or some shit like that. But like at some point in the, you know, 2010s or whatever, maybe 2013, 14, I was able to locate those videos again. And they had like between tens of thousands. And I think a few of them had like a hundred thousand views or something like that. And I was like, holy shit, these videos I had done, like when I was like a fucking kid, here they are getting all these views. It's probably the most popular thing I've ever done that I, I actually, I don't care anything about. But, um, but, uh, Yes, to bring me back to my freaking story, um, I probably had mentioned, like, oh, yeah, I like to videotape stuff. And so my uh, music studio teacher was like, well, I have this performance coming up where we're going to be playing my music at this mime theater. Like, would you be willing to record it? And I was like, sure. And when I show up to the fucking gig, one of the ushers is, guess who? Miss M. And first of all, I think a few of us have had that experience where you see one of your teachers out in the wild. It's always fucking weird. Like, I remember I had a teacher in fourth grade, Ms. G. I remember seeing her outside of, uh, like, every city you live in has its own freaking grocery store that you say the name of, and local people know what you're talking about, but nobody else knows what the fuck you're talking about. In, uh, in Tucson, there's a grocery store chain called Bashes. And so it was outside of the fucking Bashes in Tucson, Arizona, and I saw Ms. G. And it was, like, fucking wild, man. And now that you're an adult, because when you're a kid, you look at adults and you think everyone's an adult, but then you, you realize, oh, some of your teachers were like in their late 20s, early 30s, and you realize they had no idea what was going on, right? Like most of them weren't even parents. They were fucking kids. A lot of them were like just out of their master's program, their mid-20s, late 20s. It's fucking crazy. I don't know. It's bizarre. But um, it was especially weird, too, because I had this moment with Miss G that I think about sometimes, which is... Like, we had to write in our diaries in, our, in class or something. We had to write these, like, you know, full-page diary entries. And I remember there was this one girl. I remember her name. I'll just call her Kay. But there was this one girl in our class who was not a very strong reader. And I remember one time Miss G was, like, calling on people to read in class. And she asked Kay to read. And Kay was, like, standing at the, at the front of the class just, like, really struggling with the reading and kind of starting over words. And it was just, you could tell she was just, like, deflating right? It was a very terrible experience for her. And for some reason, I just sort of like, I held it against Miss G, like, oh, how could you make her do that? And so in my diary entry, I started writing like, oh, I can't believe her. She's so mean. Why does she make Kay do this thing and stand in front of the class? It's so embarrassing. And oh, she's awful. And I wish she would just lighten up. And 99 times out of 100, you would just sort of turn your diary in, right? And I guess I was kind of early or whatever. And I like hand my diary over into the stack. And she goes, Oh, well, let's see here. And she starts reading it. And I was like, what the fuck? Out of all the times I've turned this goddamn diary and you've never fucking read a single word of it. Why the fuck are you reading it now? And all of a sudden I just see her face wilt, right? Like she starts to read with a smile on her face. Like, oh, let's see what he's written here. Starts reading. All of a sudden her face starts to melt. And she just starts looking horribly concerned. And in some ways it reminds me of my girlfriend. Like I wasn't, I don't know what I was, but she goes, Oh my gosh, come over here. Let's talk about this. And so she like pulls me into the back of the room. And like, as she's asking me what's going on, it's like, I'm terrified of like having to be accountable for what I've read. And it's like, I, I think it was like the first time in my life where I felt like tears, like welling up inside of me. And I remember my mouth, like my mouth just sort of like frowning at the sides as I'm like holding back tears and just trying to explain like, oh, I just felt bad for Kay. And why did you have to embarrass her in front of a class? And Miss G ended up explaining to me that, uh, that her parents had asked Miss G to like help her with her reading. And right. So even though it looks challenging and it's not fun, you know, part of her job as a teacher is to like challenge people to rise to the occasion, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason... I had always held that against Miss G. Like, I don't think I realized it consciously as a kid, but it's like, I think in my mind, I sort of had already decided that I didn't like her. And the fact that she had like beckoned me into this vulnerable moment, I think it just like, 
I don't know. I think I felt embarrassed around her. In a way, it's kind of like what I'm talking about with the artists, right? Like, I'm picturing some, like, what if you're the lead singer of Kings of Leon? Out of all the hundreds of women that you've been with, there's been pl- there have to be statistically times where you just, like, couldn't get it up. You had done too much Coke or too much whiskey or whatever. And it's like, how many dozens of girls have you tried to bed? You're up there trying to be cool Mr. Rockstar, and you got two, two dozen girls watching you on the David Letterman show going, yeah, he thinks he's hot shit. He couldn't get it up around me. That kind of stuff is deflating, right? And so I think I was applying that to Miss G. Ugh. <laughs> Sounds disgusting. But the point I'm trying to make is, is I had this vulnerable experience with her, right? And instead of just sort of accepting it for what it was, uh, I sort of held it against her. But really, what the fuck am I talking about? Um, so I bump into Miss M. Jesus Christ, man. I, I bump into Miss M at the Mime Theater fucking show. And it's already weird, right? It's, it's weird to be seeing your teacher in, like, pedestrian clothes. Because she was the type of teacher who would wear, like, these, like, you know, denim dresses with, like, schoolhouse earrings, right? They'd wear, like, a fucking apple necklace. Just crazy shit that you're like, where do people find this stuff? It's just the craziest drawer you've ever seen in your life. And, um... So I bump into her, I'm like, oh, hey, Miss M, how are you? And she goes, oh, I'm, I'm really well. Yeah, thank you for asking. How have you been? Yada, yada, yada. And I'm kind of catching her. I'm like, so, um, so yeah, what's new? And she goes, well, it may sound strange, but I, I, I've actually found that I have, uh, I have a, a gift. And I was like, yeah? She goes, yeah, I, I have a gift of, I, I can actually talk to the dead. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> really and it was like all of a sudden everything everything just snapped into focus right now i'm in my i'm probably like 1920 i'm not an adult myself but i'm not i'm not in fucking eighth grade right like five or six years have gone by and i'm like oh mrs m is fucking nuts like, she's fucking crazy. Oh, okay. So she's been telling me about how she, like, has a guru, and she's been, like, taking... She's been cultivating this talent. It's like she might as well have been told me that she fucking holds a seance every week. Jesus Christ. Here I am talking to the James Von Prague of fucking English teachers. English teachers. <sighs> Anyway, why am I beating up on Miss M? I don't know. I think I was equating this idea of like feeling accountable to people that you went to school with. And just recently, and I don't know why exactly, maybe I was thinking about this, but like I was looking back at my middle school and trying to find, I was trying to find her. In some ways, I was kind of even thinking about my seventh grade English teacher. Like, all of us had, like, a Holocaust, what do you call it? A Holocaust segment, a Holocaust unit or whatever, like, in middle school or around that time, right? And it was in my seventh grade humanities class with Miss P. I think I've talked about Miss P. Miss P was, like, very kind. She was very friendly. She was very sweet. She was the one who would read the Bible while she was driving. Oh, my God. I know we've talked about this. She would read the Bible while she was driving. I remember we were going, we had like a school field trip out to old Tucson studios. We're in these fucking vans that the school had. Didn't take a school bus, took the fucking school vans. And yeah, was just in the back while Miss P was reading the Bible while she was driving. It's fucking nuts. But she was my, uh, she was my Holocaust unit teacher. And I actually, damn, I'm all over the place today. One, I was thinking about the Holocaust stuff because it's kind of like where we are now, right? Everyone's talking about Trump is a, is, a, is a fascist and he's the next Hitler. And I don't know what's true, but um, I definitely, like I said, I, I know we all feel it, right? We're living at a momentous moment. <laughs> it's redundant. We're living at a momentous time in history, right? And, um, and uh, who knows what the future holds, but, you know, this is like an important election, right? And... I'm not saying the world's going to end if Trump gets another four years, but it's definitely not going to be helped by it. And um, I'm kind of moving away from talking about school and stuff. But um, something else I've been doing, and I think I may have mentioned it on the podcast also, but, you know, other than my single vote, 
it's really hard to know how to contribute to things, uh, how to contribute to the election, right? I mean, you could give money to a candidate, that's fine. But I've, I was actually talking to my brother yesterday. Look, guys, look, this is not going to be a great episode, right? It's going to be choppy. I'm jumping around topics. It's going to be what it is, right? We're just going to knock this one out. It's going to be fine. And then next week we'll come back and have a better episode. But I was talking to my brother yesterday. He and his wife moved to a new town. They bought a house. It's fucking beautiful, right? Um, it's good to see their dog too. I love their fucking dog. But I was talking to my brother because right before he moved and the whole Black Lives Matter movement was sort of kicking off, um, he wanted to get involved. And he was a fan of a local football club. And he was really disappointed in their approach or response rather to the Black Lives Matter movement. Like they had released some kind of letter that was kind of, um, I don't even know the word for it. They were obliquely kind of referencing the event, but not offering their full support to the movement. And this really bothered my brother, especially given the fact that they were at, you know, at that time beginning to build a new stadium for the club uh, in a predominantly black neighborhood, displacing people. Um, and, um, you know, and it just seemed to be the case that the majority of their fan base was mostly white and that at least once a week or whatever during soccer season, you'd have about 30,000 white people, middle-class white people converging on this black neighborhood and just kind of treating it like their playground, you know, and this club clearly didn't see themselves as part of the neighborhood they were moving into, right? And so my brother got the director or president of the football club on the phone and just sort of shared his thoughts with him. And at the time... You know, I was really proud of my brother for doing that, but it also made me feel a little, um, sorry, man, I'm, I'm yawning, I'm burping, I'm falling apart over here, man. But, um, it made me feel like, damn, I really need to be doing something also. And I didn't know what it was going to be. And and my therapist mentioned something called vote forward, which uh, is something I'm seeing more about now. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is, is you may have heard of it yourself. But what Vote Forward is, is you basically uh, adopt voters, and they have a, a roster or list uh, of voters throughout the country who are likely not to vote. They are registered voters in their state, but are unlikely to vote. And I don't know how they identify these people. I'm sure there are some, you know, they have access to some record of people who may be registered to vote but didn't vote. And if I'm being honest, I really think that these are probably registered Democrats, because even though Vote Forward is, I think, publicly nonpartisan, I think you really get the sense that they're that they're liberal. Their agenda is they don't want Trump reelected. And uh, what you can do is you can go on Vote Forward, you can register, and uh, you basically have one letter that you print off a template for. You adopt voters, and you just send them a letter, this template that you personalize. It says, Dear Blank, you put in their name, you encourage them to vote, you give your reasons why you vote, which can just be like a one-sentence thing. You sign it. I put my first name and my last initial. I don't want to put anything too identifying. And you basically, ma- everyone's mailing their letters out on like, it'll probably push forward, but really it's going to be like on October 27th, right? So you have this flood of emails going out to people who are unlikely to vote right before the election, hoping that this will compel them to vote. And I guess studies have shown that it, that it usually works. And in a very close election... The idea is that this push could be just the thing it takes to get people to vote and swing and sway the election results, right? Um, and so I sort of registered, you know, I adopted like 20 voters and then I just fucking sat on it. Like I didn't do anything with it. And it was only in the last week or two that I really thought, man, I really got to fucking get up to that. And then literally uh, two, was it two days ago? I just started doing it, right? I printed off some letters. I started signing them. I did like 20. And then uh, Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I was like, I don't know. It it sounds weird. I'm not, honestly, I'm not involved in politics. You know, we always do this thing when someone dies, we raise them to the level of folk hero. Not that she wasn't great. I'm just saying, I think half the people mourning her and, and, and bemoaning her death probably didn't think twice about her before. There's just a lot of uh, uh, posturing going on in the social media circles, right? We all know what that looks like. <clears throat> but it did feel like just another sign of like, hey, look, you got you to gotta do something, right? And uh, 
So, so far, me and my girlfriend, I think we've like written a hundred, right? And I just printed off a hundred more. So I'd like to challenge you. If you're listening to this podcast, you're wanting to participate in the election. And look, honestly, it doesn't matter who you want to win the election. Literally, the letter itself states, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just asking you to vote, right? Again, I think they I think they don't want Trump re-election, but look, you really don't have control over who people vote for, right? You're really just encouraging them to vote. And if that's something that you think is worthwhile, I would really recommend that you go to voteforward, uh, probably .org. You could probably Google it. You'll go right to it. Register. Just do five or 20 people. And if you do those five or 20, you know, and you realize, oh, this is really easy, like I did, you'll probably do more. And I'm not saying it's going to sway the election. I don't fucking know, but it feels like something. You know, and I wish there was something that was more, I wish I knew of something that was more, I don't know, empirically effective or, um, but like, what are you going to do? Are you going to phone bank? No, that feels fucking useless, right? I mean, aren't you bothered by everybody who writes you or everybody who phones you? Maybe that was a Freudian slip. Aren't you bothered by everybody who calls you or a dude? I even, it fucking pisses me off when people text me. Like I'll get someone's like, Hey, this is Nick from the fucking Sanders campaign. Can we count on your vote? And I'm like, Nick, don't text me. And they're like, all right, buddy. Have a good day. Ta-ta. They're like uh, Flanders from fucking Simpsons. Howdy ho, neighbor. Oakley doakley. Yeah, me and my girlfriend love that show. I was telling you guys, we registered for Disney Plus because we wanted to watch Hamilton. We watched half of it and I fucking haven't returned to it. But we have been watching Simpsons. I'm such a Philistine. I can't watch the cultural sensation that is Hamilton, and yet I'll watch Simpsons. But I actually think that show is really smart. But I will say my favorite character so far is Flanders. <sighs> Although we did wa- we started watching Love on the Spectrum last night. God, that show is fucking awesome. We watched the first three episodes. Gosh. I know everyone's been, been gushing about it. That's kind of why I've been steering clear of it, but it's so good. You're probably watching it yourself, but if you haven't, I highly recommend you watch it. Anyway, I know this is going to sound weird on the podcast, but I really got to try to plug my, um, I got to try, one minute, well, I just hit a button. Let's see here. I'm trying to get my, uh, I got to see where we're at in the podcast. Wow, Jesus, man, time flies. We're at like minute 43-ish. You know, it really reminds me, I mean, I know this wasn't a great episode, folks. I'm not pretending it was. But as I look at the clock and I'm feeling like, damn, that's pretty far, but it's also like, damn, we still kind of got a long way to go when you really think about it. We got like over 15 minutes left to talk about, and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck we're going to talk about. Where I really start to feel maybe this maybe this podcast really should be fifty minutes five zero. I mean, I know you said that on the last episode, and we were like just past an hour. Or how do I say it? In the in the second to last episode, I was saying that, and then we were like just past an hour. But then the last episode was like the longest episode we've ever done. So, oh man, I don't know. But uh, yeah, love on the spectrum. Simpsons. Man, I don't know what else to talk about, honestly. Is it lame to say there's a lot of things I want to talk about that I feel like I can't talk about? I guess I can say this. Um, I've been uh, talking a lot about Jonathan Blow on the podcast. Actually, this is kind of cool. I've been talking a lot about Jonathan Blow on the podcast, and I've really been kind of, um, I don't know, I've been marinating on this idea. I don't know why all of a sudden I'm returning to my interest in uh, Jonathan Blow, who's the video game designer for Braid and the Witness. 
But it's like when I'm doing homework or even after, as I was doing these um, vote forward letters, I had Jonathan Blow videos like playing on YouTube in the background. And even though I don't understand 99% of what he talks about because it's very technical, he's talking about programming. There's just something about his perspective that I really respect, right? And so, and when he begins talking about creativity or aesthetics or something, it, it just really hits me deep, right? And it's like, I understand you know, before there's so many questions, like, why is The Witness such a deep game to me? Why does it resonate so deeply with me? And then when you hear someone talk about their creative approach, you know, and their perspective on the things that they make, you go, oh, fuck. Yeah, of course it hits me, man. This guy's a fucking deep-ass thinker. Um, but I was really kind of contemplating, like, why, why games all of a sudden? You know, it's not like I want to make a game myself, but it's like, why... Why games? Why am I, why am I so obsessed about this person's perspective all of a sudden? And it did get me interested. I mean, I just said I didn't want to make games, but I, it has made me curious about how games are made. And it's also just interesting to see someone who's like a master in a field that they've clearly dedicated their whole life to that I, have, I, I know nothing about. Like a lot of us have the tools to create things uh, that we digest or we ingest, right? Like your computer comes with GarageBand. So if you want to make music, you can make music. Your computer comes with iMovie, or you could buy Final Cut. Like many people have the tools to create, um, whether or not they're good at it, many people have the, the sort of fundamental tools to create the types of things that they like. Music, film, poetry, books. Like you can write a book, right? But there's something about video games, which are wildly popular, that at least my generation, maybe this is not true of younger generations, but most of us don't really fucking know how they're made. Like, we don't understand programming. We don't understand, you know, game design engines or, or, or all that sort of shit. Um, so it has made me curious about how they're made. And especially Jonathan Blow talks about, like, he's basically creating his own programming language, right? So he, like, designs his own uh, game engine, and he's writing his own programming language and all that sort of shit. But it made me think, like, well, what are, what are the tools that people are using? And so when you look at different game design engines, there's a lot of different choices. But one I found was called Game Maker. And the reason I was sort of focused on that one is because it happens to be the engine that um, the game Hyper Light Drifter was made in. And our, you know, Disaster Piece, who does the theme music for our fucking podcast, he did the music for Hyper Light Drifter. <clears throat> and it's a beautiful game. And I thought, damn, well, somebody made a fucking beautiful game in that. I might as well just sort of see what it is. And so you can download a trial of the software, and it, it, you can find this tutorial where it teaches you how to make your first game. And it's an Asteroids-like game. You basically make a little ship that flies around, and you shoot asteroids. And just out of the blue today, I, I, just, I just stumbled on it and decided, oh, I'm going to do this. So I've, I've kind of run into some problems. You know, I, I don't know how to fix them necessarily. But I'm like three-quarters of the way through making this tiny game. And... Um, it's, it's fucking fascinating. Uh, I, I really don't think I'm going to pursue it any further than this. But it is one of those things where you kind of get like a peek under the hood at something and you just think it, just, it goes super deep. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know that's probably the understatement of the fucking uh, of the century, but it's just interesting to get a taste of what somebody's a fucking master at and just go, oh, God. I mean, there's interesting things that, um, I don't know if you'll find them inter interesting, but one thing YouTube is showing me more is about like speed runs in video games. And it's like, you think, wow, that's the lamest thing in the world. Somebody who just spends all their time like trying to get faster at Super Mario Brothers. But if you ever watch, and I forget the, I forget the YouTube channel, but there is one channel in particular that just highlights the, you know, the, the speed run records of like a bunch of different games. And it'll basically walk you through the speedrun history of like Ninja Gaiden or fucking or uh, Super Mario Brothers or Doom. And it's like when you actually get in there and see what people are having to learn to get these speedruns, one, it is phenomenally fucking lame, but it is also impressive also. You know, where you really realize, oh, it's the type of thing you think you could do, but when you actually see what's involved, there's no fucking way you could do it. Um... But it's also a bit like, uh, I don't know what was happening. I was with my girlfriend in some parkour video. <laughs> I was actually talking about Naruto running. You know what that is? It's like when you run with your arms behind you. It's like the anime run that people do. I don't remember how it came up, but I was telling her about it. And she was like, what the fuck are you talking about? So I tried to show her some, I tried to show her some videos about it. Like I showed her the anime version and then like what people are doing, like as like a, a meme thing. But I saw this one video, it was like a POV GoPro type Naruto running slash parkour video. 
And as I was watching it, you know, the people who do parkour well, they make it look so fucking easy. And it was like parkour is kind of like yo-yoing. It's one of those skills that I, I would love to wake up and be able to do phenomenally well. Or like cardistry, right? I mean, I do some shuffling or whatever, but it's like they make it look so cool and easy that if you could do it, you feel like your life would be 10 times better. But there's no fucking way in hell that you're going to put in the work. I don't know if I feel exactly that way about speedrunning in video games, but it's just like there's some things you see like parkour. Hell, it could even be Jonathan Blow at programming where you're like, if I could wake up and have that skill, that'd be fucking awesome. But there's no goddamn way I'm going to put in the time and the work it takes to get not even that level, just relatively competent at it. In some ways, when you see someone who's really a master at their craft, it makes you wonder if you've really mastered anything in your life, right? Like, I, I was kind of embarrassed because I, I, I normally don't listen to the podcast, but over the last couple weeks, there's been like two recent episodes that I've kind of picked through as I've been in the car, and I heard myself saying on the last episode, um, I was saying like, it's hard to see people who I really feel akin to creatively, and they're successful, right? And I wonder why I'm not successful. But the truth is, is, I I don't wonder why I'm not successful. But the point is, is that I think this person sort of went all in on something and they had the courage and they just sort of put in the time, right? They focused on something that maybe other people thought were a waste of time, but they had some vision about it. They pursued it and they pursued it as far as they could, right? And of course, it's like anything. It's like uh, the dude who uh, uh, walked on a tightrope between the World Trade Center. Like when you have the courage to pursue a skill to a level that nobody else dares to enter, when you actually accomplish it, uh, that's where the magic is, right? You show people what's possible if they pursue some, if they really let go of the life they think they're supposed to lead and pursue something as deep as it goes, they're able to find something magical. And it's not like it's going to make them money. I mean, some people do make money at it. But it's just about showing people what's possible if they dare to live outside of the lines a little bit. And one thing I've always felt in my life, one, there are things I want to do, excuse me, that I know I shy away from because they feel too crazy, right? And you think, oh, damn, well, I'm I'm going to school. I'm supposed to be doing X, Y, Z, and I got to get good grades, and I got to do this, and I got to work toward that. And it just feels too fucking nuts. You know, but then you hear the people who like create good things and they say, yeah, but I just knew like Jonathan Blow has this idea about how, you know, if uh, the project you're about to embark on is good. And one of the benchmarks of, a, a, you know, it's not the only benchmark, but one of the benchmarks he has found for a project that's probably worth your time is because most good things, if you have good standards of if you have good high standards for yourself, they're going to take a very long time, a very long time time, right? And you're going to find yourself probably not even halfway through it, probably a quarter into it. You're going to be looking at a Gordian knot of problems that need to be solved. And you need to have something, you need to have enough juice left to see you through the project, right? And for him, he knows that a project is probably good enough. When he talks about it, he sort of like cries. And it's not that he sort of like weeps with, uh, I don't even know what you call it, but it's like the wellspring of emotion, the, the, the emotions well up in you to such a degree that you, you're on the brink of tears. You're so passionate about this thing, right? And it's not sadness, it's something else. You know, I've talked about my girlfriend who cries a lot. It's not because she's sad, it's just she has a relatively low ceiling of emotional content that if, it's, if her emotion container fills up, it just manifests in the form of tears, right? And that could be sadness. It could also be anger. It could also, it could be anything. It could be joy, right? If she's, if if she feels something deep enough, it sort of manifests in tears. And I think that's kind of what Jonathan Blow is talking about. Like the idea that is so moving, it feels so important. It feels so vulnerable that it literally, to talk about it, you kind of feel the emotions welling up in you, right? And if you don't feel that passionately about it, it's probably not compelling enough. It probably doesn't mean enough to you to be the type of thing you should give years of your life to. And he doesn't say this, but it also, the inference for me, because I feel like there are things in my life that I feel that way about, that I haven't pursued necessarily, it makes me think, 
how would how is how does not doing those things make you feel? Like maybe another way to look at it is not only does talking about doing that thing sort of bring up emotions in you, but what is the idea of not doing that thing bring up for you? Like if at the end of your life on your deathbed, you're standing on the brink of your own, you're, you're standing on the brink of the nether gloom, right? That you're about to enter with this thing undone. How are you going to feel? Are you going to feel like I didn't do the thing I was supposed to do? I did a lot. I did a lot of great things. I did a lot of things I should have done in other people's eyes, but I didn't do the one thing I was supposed to do, right? The thing. And then how do you feel? And it's weird. I mean, uh, you know, you hear from people who work in hospice or work with, you know, end of life patients and they, they, a lot of times you hear people say, you know, priorities change at the end of life. The things you think are important are not important, right? Like many people who die, like what they want is a cigarette (laughs) before they die. People crave sensory delights, you know, and a lot of these sort of like, uh, Herculean tasks that we thought would make us happy or give meaning to our life. Sometimes they seem less important, right? We wish we would have actually spent more time laying around. You know, and you hear successful, motivated people say, like, say the opposite. They say, look, at the end of their life, you're going to wish you watch more Netflix. Well, that's a living person saying that, right? But many people that have been in life probably do. They say, damn, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have... Like Marcus Aurelius in his meditations has this observation. I, and I think it's at the beginning, so you could probably leaf through it and find it. I don't remember what he says exactly, but it's something like, how much of your life has your face worn its natural countenance? How much of your life have you spent with your brow furrowed? How many moments of actual repose have you felt and had? Right, something like that. And I think that's, in a way, I was telling myself recently, I was just saying it to my girlfriend, actually, when I was driving her home. I, it was like uh, I dropped her off at school. To, I dropped her off for a play date with her friend, and I picked her up and took her home. It was like, as we were driving home, I was saying, you know, because I was actually supposed to be doing this podcast earlier. She's like, oh, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I made the mistake of looking at my work email. Right? And so I was fucking, I was buried in that for a couple hours. But I was saying, you know, I think I have to meditate more. You know, especially as I look up around my life now, I I feel the monkey brain working a lot, right? I feel that I was, I mean, I was talking about one of my trainees recently, I was talking about this idea. Um, You know, a lot of people don't like meditating, but I think it's because they're, they're kind of shooting at the wrong target, right? Like they think when you meditate, you sort of slip into this ohm state, right? Where you sort of are sort of transcend the world and, um, I don't know, you become calm and detached in a way that's, that's supposed to feel something like you're approaching enlightenment or something. Um, but I think anyone who actually does it and is honest about their experience will tell you that it's actually, it's very difficult. And you may have some moments where you feel like you transcend something, but those are fleeting and maybe last a second, two seconds, maybe three seconds. You feel like, oh, I think I'm doing this right. And then of course you get swept back up on your thinking again. It's real for me anyway, the skill has been to just see what it feels like to try not to think. You know, when you try to be still and try to just focus on your breathing, you feel your brain is on a fucking treadmill and it just sort of helps you understand, oh, this is my life all the time. I go through my life and I think I'm in control, but this is going on, this chaos is going on all the time. No wonder I feel fucking tired at the end of the day. And I'm not just talking about physically tired. I'm talking about, you know, that type of tired where you feel like you've just been on the internet all day, just bouncing from tab to tab and you haven't been productive. It's that kind of anxiety because you haven't had clarity. You haven't stepped off the fucking treadmill of your fucking monkey brain, right? Um... I need that. And why was I talking about that? I don't even fucking know, man. I know we were talking about Jonathan Blow. We were talking about not doing the thing at the end of life. Priorities change. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm doing a lot of things right now. I'm doing the school thing. I'm doing the work thing. I'm doing the applying to school thing. I'm doing the vote forward thing. 
you know, there's some finance things, excuse me, I'm supposed to be doing. <sighs> and, um, yeah, dude, I just feel like I'm getting pulled apart by horses sometimes. But is it for me? That's, that's sort of what I wonder. You know, something I say in therapy once in a while is I, you know, I'm kind of happy where my life is now in the sense that, excuse me, oh man, I hope I don't have the hiccups. Oh, this could be bad, folks. We may have to end. Yep, I just hiccuped. We, we're we're going to have to end here. Um, excuse me. Oh, this is awful. Oh, this is awful, folks. Excuse me. I don't know where these hiccups are coming from. Excuse me. All right, yeah. Well, sorry, folks. That's got to be the end. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm going to try one thing. I'm going to... Excuse me, I'm going to try to hold my breath for like 15 seconds. Hold on. If it doesn't work, we're out of here. One second. Nope. Sorry, I burned. All right, I hiccup three times while I was doing while I was doing that. Oh man, what a nightmare! I don't think this is the worst episode of the podcast, but it's it's up it's up there. All right, let's get out of here. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Excuse me. We'll just have to pick this up another time. Anyway, is it too quick to say? If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Rate and review the show. Rate and review the show. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like it. Think of one person in your life who you think would like the podcast and send them your favorite episodes. Otherwise, thank you for listening. Excuse me. Thank you for your time. (laughs) And ciao for now.